What's up, guys? Just a reminder that applications for the coalition are going to be ending soon. If you just started listening, the coalition is a six-month accountability group we have. It's a community within Art of Coaching that welcomes professionals from all fields. We do bi-monthly calls. We do uh, a weekend collaborative getaway uh, in different parts of the country where we help each other work through different aspects of our personal and professional lives. And what it is all about is being able to find a group or a tribe of mentors and people that can share certain pain points, share certain strategies, share certain scenarios that they've had to work through so that you never really feel alone in any endeavor you're going through. Again, it's open to all professions. We've had an awesome group of people. Uh, This was made out of a lot of the frustration I had in my career where I'd kind of turn to things or people for advice. And it seemed like it was always just kind of the standard stuff. Um, So I always really craved a community of people that could share ideas and weren't just sitting there kind of listening to everybody else talk, but were rather chipping in. We're rather engaging. And there's always an output at the end. So at the beginning of the six months, everybody goes through kind of a review process, talking about what they want to accomplish, where they'd like to go. And then week after week after week, we're always taking steps to hold each other accountable. Uh, If you join the coalition, you get free access to any one of my courses of your choice. Um, we do eight, up to eight hours a month of dialogue discussion. We film everything so that if you can't make a meeting, no worries. You have that on the back end. We have private groups and the communication goes on between there. And most importantly, I'm happy to put you in touch with any previous coalition member so that they can answer your questions about what that experience was like. It is absolutely an investment. I'm not going to shy away from that fact. Um, I dedicate my own time, money, and effort to this. And anybody that applies is expected to do the same. It goes hand in hand with my credo that, guys, unless you have skin in the game, you're usually not going to evolve. That's bottom line. If we're surrounded by comfort and there's never a consequence, financial or otherwise, then what reason do we really have to move forward? Uh, There's just a lot of excuses we all can come up with. And we're never going to have enough time. We're never going to have enough money. We're never going to have enough anything. So the coalition is made to keep us accountable. So make sure you go to artofcoaching.com. You guys will see the mentoring tab. Click on the coalition. We'd love to have you as part of it. The next group starts in February, 2020. All right, on with the episode. Have a great rest of the day. Welcome to the Art of Coaching Podcast, a show aimed at getting to the core of what it takes to change attitudes, behaviors, and outcomes in the weight room, boardroom, classroom, and everywhere in between. I'm your host, Brett Bartholomew. I'm a performance coach, keynote speaker, and the author of the book, Conscious Coaching. But most importantly, I'm a lifelong student interested in all aspects of human behavior and communication. I want to thank you for joining me. And now let's dive into today's episode. here with Greg Baker, who I'm fortunate enough to have as a next door neighbor, but it's quite the history, not only in terms of law enforcement, but leadership. I appreciate you doing this, Greg. No problem at all. Uh, This was something I've wanted to do for a long time after learning about what you did as a career for what, over 40 years? Uh, 34 years. 34, so close, but been married 42. Am I right on that one? Right. And that's another job in and of itself. Definitely. Yeah. And so you know, the, we've talked about a little bit how it may seem like what you did and what you've done in your career, just part of you doing your job in law enforcement, you know, quotidian, just 
humble servant leadership, but you had quite a journey that got you into the police force, didn't you? Yeah, I think everybody's got a story, but yeah, so I, I have a story. And know. tell me a little bit about that specifically, you know, when we were talking casually about your friend and what you witnessed when you were young and what really got you to join the police force to begin with. Well, if, if you start from the beginning at the very uh, exodus of high school, I started college with the anticipation I was going to be a doctor. And then, uh, so I had a good, I, I had a good beginning, but my role to the doctorship uh, never procured because I got off the path and I started uh, hanging around with the people that wanted to be out and about and do, you know, fun things and party scene and all that kind of stuff and not, you know, illegal stuff, just, just doing stuff that probably didn't benefit somebody that should be on the path to college. So I was out at two o'clock in the morning one night and I'd been, you know, at the bar drinking and I hung around with some guys. I had some great friends and I had some people I just knew. And a couple of guys I knew, uh, they always seemed to have these different type of cars uh, with the sporty wheels and the fast cars and all that kind of stuff. And I mean, I wasn't into cars, but I mean, it was, they were some sharp looking cars. One was a, Chevy Impala kind of souped up. One was a nice looking Chevy Monte Carlo. And anyway, we come up, leave, we leave this bar on the south side of Chicago. The two guys decide uh, they're going to race their cars. So they peel out in front of the bar. And, you know, there's nobody out on the road, it seems like. And they peel out and they head in one direction. And all of a sudden, they both kind of make a U-turn. Ironically, uh, a group of us are standing outside watching this, thinking, you know, look at these idiots, you know, acting a fool. Well, they tear off down the street, screeching their tires, and lo and behold, there's a police car, apparently a couple of blocks down. Uh, the times in in the, uh, in the in the 70s in Chicago, you know, with the police, especially in the African American community, wasn't like it was a real um, best of relationships as it is no different than kind right. of like it is yeah, right no now. Different than, yeah. But, uh, so anyway, the police car, you know, sees them speeding down the street, goes to stop them. They kind of split up. So the police car chases one particular car, uh, and probably about a mile away, uh, from where we were, we subsequently learned that there was a, uh, a crash uh, of the guy I knew in a car and the police were right there. He kind of ran into a, a, a light pole. Not, not real bad, but to the point where he had to, you know, crawl out of the car. So yeah. he, he crawls out of the car and uh, this is the story that was disturbing to me. Uh, he was never a bad guy, never a, like a thuggish kind of a guy, uh, just maybe off. Uh, and doing some things he probably shouldn't do. But uh, anyway, uh, he gets out of the car, and uh, not too long after getting out of the car, he ends up getting shot and killed by the police. So we naturally, you inquire about that. Hey, what what did he do? What happened there? And uh, to make a long story short, 
Uh, the police officers said that uh, they thought he had a gun and that he, that he was pulling a gun on him. Uh, so they ended up shooting him and killing him. And what they foretook was a gun was later found out reportedly to be his uh, Afro comb. That he was reaching into his back pocket to pull out his ac Afro comb and, and uh, they ended up shooting him. And he wasn't doing that right. He wasn't pulling anything out. I mean, that was just kind of the story they told. Yeah, that that's, you know, obviously there's nobody uh, but the police officers, unfortunately, uh, my deceased friend who know exactly what happened, but uh, it just didn't sound right. And uh, unfortunately, those kinds of things, uh, you know, have occurred in, over history. So it, it really bothered me. At that time, I was very interested uh, since I was not uh, obviously going to be a doctor because I was several years now. I had been out of, out of college and had stopped that uh, doctor-seeking uh, mode that I had then. But uh, I was always intrigued by police and the police work. And I thought, well, I need to do something for myself, obviously, but more so uh, for my community. And maybe I could make a difference. Maybe I could turn things around. Maybe stuff like this wouldn't happen uh, where, you know, somebody gets shot and uh, killed uh, over some, you know, a ridiculous statement. Like I thought a comb was a gun. Is that when you entered, is that when you entered Northwestern University, the staff of school or the school of command and really started down that journey? Or what was, what was the path between that moment, that defining moment, and then you really going through the training and then what eventually led to over three decades in law enforcement? Well, the, the first path is, uh, you know, you, you have to begin to apply for the police department. So uh, the unfortunate incident that I'm uh, speaking about occurred around uh, 1976, 77, right around uh, that time period uh, when I uh, was getting married. Uh, so, I applied for the Chicago Police Department and I wanted because I wanted to be a Chicago cop. Uh, I was unsuccessful. I went through a process where I got a great score on a written test. I, I passed the physical fitness, all that kind of stuff because I was young and halfway fit. Not like mm. you, Brett, but uh, yeah, I don't know about that. Halfway fit anyway. But uh, I got to a, a board. Uh, where you had an oral interview, and uh, I I failed that. Uh, you know, again, the police department, the African American community, didn't have a great relationship, and you know, I I didn't believe I failed the oral board, so I asked to see my my assessment at the end of it. I was assessed by three uh, members of the police department. Uh, two Caucasian men and one African-American guy. I had a great score from the African-American guy. I had two bad scores from the Caucasian men, which, which knocked me out. So uh, I didn't become a Chicago police officer, but that was a blessing, I think, in disguise because I did subsequently uh, become a suburban police officer, a South suburban police officer in the city, uh, outside the city of Chicago. And that wasn't really the first time, I mean, just from our earlier talk that you continue to deal with the, politi the politics and just perception and prejudice with the, with the race piece, right? Like there's always this 
you know, I remember you telling me you were the first African-American police chief in Riverdale. And for anybody listening, I mean, like, you got to understand Chicago, the greater Chicago area, but specifically Southside Chicago has some of the highest crime rate, if not the highest yeah. in the country. You could correct me on that. But yeah. And so yeah. even though you were in Riverdale on the outskirts of that, the bottom line is you're still in the shadow of a city that has some pretty widespread problems. How did you even approach where to where to begin? And where I frame that up is just because some some coaches or leaders may take new jobs, new roles, and it's just a shitstorm, yeah. for lack of a better you know term. And they always kind of feel like they can just overtake that with energy and three hundred and six or one hundred and eighty degree change. And we're gonna put this agenda in, but you had a different approach, one based on listening. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, I uh, I worked at three different police departments. My uh, beginning of my career. As I mentioned, started in the south suburbs of Chicago in a, a village called Park Force, where I worked for 23 years. As I uh, worked there, uh, I went through the ranks. I got to do some specialty jobs. Uh, I always say I think I did every and held every job you could could hold in a police department, from being a patrol officer, detective, narcotics guy, uh, just uh, the various ranks from uh, we had corporal, we had commander, we had captain. And uh, in every police department I was at, you know, it just so happens I was always like the first African-American to ever be promoted to certain things. So I was at Park Forest. I was the first black commander. I was the first black captain. I was the first black deputy chief. Uh, and I think, uh, because of those things in the beginnings of, of my uh, law enforcement career, I learned, and I think this is also the type of person I am, you, you, you find out more, you learn more, uh, you gain more by listening to people uh, than by, by trying to speak uh, all the time. You, know, you, you gotta listen to learn, I mean, uh, unless, uh, you have some disability where you can't do that, but uh, you know all of us. We we have to listen listen to people to learn, and you just can't listen to one side. You know, as a police officer, you gotta you gotta listen to all sides of everything involved, and then you have to use your common sense and your training to decide. Hey, who is being truthful? Uh, who's probably not being truthful? Uh, because you have to make a decision. You can't stand there and eventually go, well, I don't know what to do because uh, you're there to help. Uh, my my term is to, is to be a difference maker. You got to be a difference maker for positivity in this world. So uh, being a guy that grew up on the south side of Chicago, hey, I learned you have to listen to not only people that look like you, you got to listen to people that might not have the same culture uh, as you or grew up in the same places that you, and there's probably a whole heck of a lot of people out here that know a whole lot more than you think you know. Yeah. And you can learn a lot of stuff. Why do you think so many people have trouble listening? I think everybody wants to uh, put themselves out there uh, and say, you know, I did this, or I'm doing this, or I know this person, or that kind of thing. And, and there's nothing wrong with being very confident and uh, telling your side. But, I, but I, I think it's unfortunate if you take today's world that, that 
people who are who are calling themselves leaders, they don't do enough actually listening to the underside, other side and assessing, you know, hey, what should I do or what can I do or what can I learn or what should I have learned? Along with using a lot of the you know, God-given common sense, uh, you know, to make determinations and to, to, to make a difference in, in somebody's life. I don't believe that we as a group of people on this earth are born to be evil or out here, you know, just to do evil. I think we're, we're born and bred to be on this earth, you know, to, to get along and to mesh and to get things solved as a group. That's the way it's supposed to be. And so when you met, when you went into different departments and you always had to deal with just some people that weren't bought in, some people that were skeptical, some people that inherently were on their own kind of agenda and not, not following a common path. What role, I mean, how did you even approach that? Did you just try to, when you say, listen, were you trying to get an idea of their wants and their needs and their struggles? Or, you know, let's say I'm a skeptic and you just walked in and I'm like, who's this dude? Yeah. How are you approaching that? Oh, definitely. You know, uh, it's my job. If I'm the leader, it's my job to speak with you, not speak to you, to speak with you and to also listen to some concerns you have. Now, if you're a person that for whatever reason uh, doesn't want to exhibit common sense, in the very least, you have uh, predicated ideas about certain things. And no matter what I say or what I hear from you and my reaction is not making any kind of difference to you, then that tells me then you know, I got a pretty hard road to uh, the toe. And I, I'm not sure if I can, you know, if I can get to you, but if you have the very least bit of, 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 of common sense or uh, something in your heart or something in your spirit or your character, you got integrity, these kinds of things, Hey, we might have a difference of opinion, but your opinion, you know, might be something that's not only good for us, especially as a police department, but may, might even benefit me as, as a person. And I don't know that if I'm not listening, you know, well enough to you uh, to take those things in. Yeah, silence is a skill without question. Do you think that good listening and the way you approach those situations even played a role in your ability to get promoted and navigate certain opportunities uh, within your career? Because I would imagine you probably had some stiff competition at some in some standpoints against you know, maybe there was somebody else in a different department that was a blowhard and they were just kind of this Rambo type, right? Where they just tried to bulldoze everything. What what edge do you think listening gave you even in terms of navigating that part of your career? Well, uh, you know, again, I think that's one important part of the aspect that, that you have to have. But I mean, if, uh, for me, you know, one of the, the main uh points I wanted to make to people was, you know, my integrity was above and beyond reproach. Uh, if I, if you don't have integrity in the field that I'm in, uh, you know, why are you there uh, yeah. for one thing? Uh, so you have to have integrity with that comes trust. Uh, you have to have confidence in yourself. You have to have common sense. You have to have some kind of smarts. You don't, 
You've got to be a mathematical genius or a professor, uh, but you but you do got to have the ability to figure out some things, and you got to be able to do it very quickly uh, because you, you're you're talking about life and death. But listening is a part of all of those, those things, and then your reactions after listening. As I say, if 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 I have a jaded character and my integrity isn't is not good or I have a prejudice to people, certain people, I don't, I don't see how I as a person can be successful. And if I can bull crap my way up the ladder and that's the way I am, at some point I'm going to fail. And I'm not only going to fail the people that I'm supposed to serve and protect, but I'm going to fail myself. And then that entails a trickle-down effect because it's not me by myself. It's me and my family and my relatives and everybody, my friends that's, that's, that's connected to me. Uh, that, that's who I'm, I'm, I'm failing also. So much of what comes across when you talk, you know, especially about listening, there's this just sub subtopic or really critical linchpin of patience involved with the way you went about your business. It seems like too, whether it was when you first dealt with your friend and that, that circumstance, you know, instead of you getting emotional and acting out, you, you, you created a purpose out of it. And I think that's the thing we talked about at your house is the difference between passion and purpose. You know, like passion, a lot of people think is a great thing, uh, but it can misdirect you if you, especially if your emotions are too, too involved with that, which is tough. But when you have patience and when you listen, it really heightens and clarifies and streamlines that sense of purpose, doesn't it? It, it well, it definitely does. I mean, in my field, I think those are some of the things that uh, you know you are taught. Sometimes the hard way you're taught that, and if you don't have it inside of you, uh, you know, I think those are part of the assessments that they give you. Uh, when you make a decision that you want to be a law enforcement officer, there's, there's, you know, there's certain qualities that you have to have. And the most basic one is the one that you see all the time on TV or you talk to people. You got to have that one basic thing. You want to be able to help people. If you don't have that, you know, then why, why are you in public service? Right. You know, whether you're a doctor, you know, the, the, the public works aspect of firefighting and uh, uh, water department, you know, these are jobs that are geared toward public service, just like uh, being in the military. That's public service. You, you are giving your life for your country. That, that, that's, that's the ultimate, the ultimate yeah. public service. And you mentioned earlier, just talking about integrity. If you don't have it, why are you there? But just as any field, there's people that get into professions that get into them for the wrong reasons. Like I know even just in strength and conditioning, it's a lot of people that love training, love uh, sports. You know, they were a competitive athlete. So they feel like, oh, you know, I'll get into this. But then they don't value the communication. They don't value the problem solving. They don't value the other pieces. And eventually they either fizzle out or they just don't abide by good ethics and practices. Did you see that commonly in law enforcement in terms of, people getting into it for the wrong reasons? And if so, what, what tipped you off that somebody maybe you oversaw in the department or that you were working with just maybe wasn't long for the field or didn't have the same kind of uh, purpose and directed focus that, that you or some others may have had? Yeah. Well, you know, it, 
I don't care what you do. Uh, there are going to be people that you encounter uh, in, the, in the things that you do, the job that you pick, the service that you provide, whatever you want to call it, uh, that just don't have what it takes. And some of them, you know, purposely don't have what it takes. I would say in, in law enforcement, way, way majority of the people that are there, once you go through the assessments uh, that you have to go through and the, the training and things like that, if, you know, the majority of them are great people, people who are out here to provide, you know, that service and that protection uh, for the people and, and of course, uh, uh, their family and their communities and things like that. But they're going to people, they're going to be people that are great, uh, you know, bull crappers that can slide by they're the, the confidence man or woman that, that knows how to talk to talk, but they just, they can't walk the walk kind of a thing. Yeah. Uh, and when you get into the leadership aspect uh, of law enforcement, it is your job. It is your duty to weed those people out. If you have a bad cop and you're just like, well, I just got to, uh, once that guy gets to his uh, his retirement age or, or something to that effect, you know, then he'll be gone. I won't have to worry about him anymore. Or, uh, well, he's not that bad. He's not out here. She's not that bad. They're not out here killing people. Well, they are. Yeah. They are harming they're harming your reputation. And if you as a leader or even if you as a peer are just watching this and, and not doing anything about it, you know, it's just, it's just like that, that old saying, you know, it takes good men to do something uh, to continue to be, you know, good men. Good men who do nothing, you know, are just like part of the problem. People are scared of that kind of conflict, aren't they? They are. And they, they really are afraid of it in my field, uh, you know, uh, the blue line, the good old boy syndrome, all of those terms that basically mean, well, if it ain't me and I ain't doing it, I ain't worrying about what the other guy, but, uh, those are the things that over the years in my years, 34 years have, have begun to change. Uh, I've seen, you know, racism at its finest and, uh, Unfortunately, it, as we see in the news today, you know, it's, it hasn't gone away and it's, and it's embedded in our, our law enforcement culture. But because of the leadership that we have coming on, that it's getting better and better and have drawn the line, uh, it, is, it is beginning, you know, to get better. Will it ever be perfect? I don't know if anything will ever be perfect, but, uh, you know, our field is based on, you know, integrity and, and saving and helping people. And so we just got to get rid of the, of the bad apples. And if we have to do it one at a time, then, then that's the way it's got to be done. But, it, you know, it's peer pressure has to turn around uh, to become, hey, this peer thing is messing up not only my department, but it's messing up and making my job harder. So I need to do something uh, as a person who works with somebody that, that's not right for this, for this job. And what's, what's frustrating and inspiring to hear about that at the same time is, 
in coaching, we have this. I mean, it's such a young field that a while ago I had written, written an article that said how ego, envy, and insecurity are eroding opportunities for coaches because there's so few jobs and even fewer jobs with super high level athletes or prestigious clubs or organizations that coaches constantly will undercut one another. Ah, oh, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. This guy, you know, they'll see a three minute snapshot of some training without the context. And then the next thing you know, they take to Twitter to try to vilify someone they've never met. And it's just this almost world wrestling federation display of just vitriol. And a lot of it is just people trying to say, Hey, you know, I'm more competent. Why this should be me. This shouldn't be this guy. And one thing we try to talk about a few, uh, a small group of us is just, that's got to stop. If the profession's ever going to grow, especially if you're ever going to be taken seriously and affect, you know, change on a larger scale. You know, so many people are worried about one job or looking competent in the eyes of one person that they don't realize that it's really corroding their own practice right. and it's, and they're not paying attention. But the thing that I've struggled with and I'd hope to learn from you is I agree. You've got to weed those people out, but is it just through, like you said, peer unity that that's going to happen? Are there any other ways that, you know, for example, the best I can figure out is one, try to set an example, but doesn't always work, you know? And then two, a, a young coach asked me the other day, what's, what's career advice you have for me? Yeah. And normally, you know, you'd hear, oh, get an internship, get your degree, do this, do that. And really what I said to them is I said, you know, when you go to these conferences and you go to these clinics and you sit down and you're talking with other coaches, the minute you find yourself sitting at a table where coaches are bad mouthing one another, or bad mouthing some other coach, or just chattering about stuff like that in general, find another table. Yeah. Because when you're constantly sitting there talking about just menial stuff like that, ego driven stuff, you're really not going to be in a position where you're ever going to make a difference or be around the type of people. Cause we've heard that adage, right? Like you take on the traits of the people you spend the most time around. Yeah. And so if you're spending time around people like that, then like, what are you going to accomplish? What are you going to do? You know, but were there any other tactics that before you had that pure unity, how did you battle that corrosiveness? Like how did you even just handle it on an individual level? Well, you know, uh, it's interesting you, you bring that up because, uh, my wife has been in the banking field for 39 years. And so I actually have learned so much from her uh, because she worked her way up, you know, the same way uh, where she was sometimes the only African-American and she had to do this and that. And then she became uh, successful in the, in the positions that she held. But she taught me probably the most important saying uh, that I used in my my work in law enforcement. And the main thing is besides setting a good example and having integrity and, uh, you know, speaking out uh, when you should and things like that when things are wrong, you've got to inspect what you expect. I like that. So if you have no expectations or if you have high expectations, right? Then you got to go inspect it. You got to make sure what you're setting, what you're, what you're, and I'll even use selling, what you're selling to the people who either are your peers or the people that work for you, that they do believe in what you do and not just saying uh, that they do. 
but you are actually inspecting it and seeing that the work is being done and hopefully is being done you know, above average or, or better because that, that's what you're seeking. You, you aren't just seeking uh, you know, something where somebody's just trying to get by no matter what it is. You're seeking that person to be the best that they can be. You're, you're, you're selling and you're showing people by example that you are trying to be the best that, that you can be. Now, you know, we had a saying where we always strive for perfection, but we know we'll never get there. But we're striving for it. If, if you're striving for mediocre, mediocrity, you know, you, you're probably just going to be that at the very best that yeah. you are. Uh, so you got to go. You got to be able to, you know, to show people. You got to be able to teach people. You got to be able to listen. And, and, and hopefully they'll get to sell or the buy-in. And I don't, I don't mean to, uh, you know, demonstracize the word sell, uh, but uh, it's the buy-in aspect of, of what you're trying to accomplish. Because if it's not for the good, you know, uh, then what, what you're selling is not uh, going to be uh, taken seriously anyway. So, but you got to inspect it and make sure that things are being done. All right, I need to pause for a moment to tell you about something that has been super helpful to me. If you've listened to me on podcasts or anything before, you know that I'm not somebody that sleeps uh, easily, right? Like the, that's probably the one part of my quote unquote routine that I struggle with the most. It, it kind of runs in my family. I've talked about it before on this podcast. We, I just have trouble shutting my brain off. And so when I was looking for something, everything gave me uh, you know, a morning hangover. I couldn't take anything with certain amounts of melatonin. And I, you know, I'm somebody that doesn't want to get into pharmaceutical means. And then our sponsor, Momentus, told us about something they were creating, sleep nighttime recovery, that is is a really tremendous product that is both NSF and informed sport approved, licensed, certified, all that. And it is something that has just the right amount of melatonin, just the right amount of magnesium, everything that I need to naturally kind of drift to sleep, especially when I'm on planes. I don't sleep really well on planes when I'm traveling. Uh, and this has been a game changer for me. It's real simple, guys. Just go to livemomentous.com, check out their sleep nighttime recovery, and be sure to use code BRETT20 to receive a 20% discount. Again, brett 20 will get you a discount on all things momentous. All right, back to the episode. I think that's spot on. And you're right about the term selling. I mean, the reality is, is a buy-in is about a shared purpose. It's about yeah. shared understanding. It's trust plus commitment. That's how I define buy-in, yeah. you know, and you have to sell people on things all the time. You know, you have to get people to, you have to find common ground. You have to yeah, especially when you're dealing with, I mean, I, I always found this part about your job fascinating. I mean, talk about the role of emotion and how it overrides logic. You get a call, you are going a hundred miles an hour to some stranger's house in all different parts of town, responding to probably some of the most ridiculous things you've ever heard come across the radio. You have no idea who's going to greet you at the door. You have no idea how they're going to greet you at the door. Yet you've got to remain the picture of equanimity, just calm, relaxed. And at the end of the day, you have to sell that person that you're there to provide the service, protect and serve. You know, you have their best interests at heart, but at the same time, you need to hear the whole story. You know, but selling, I think people, to your point, get selling wrong. 
they think that if you're sold something, it's always got to be wrong. Like it's got to be something uh, that's not advantageous. Yeah. You know, we, that's because we have that idea of the salesman slick back hair, selling us a lemon vehicle. But all you're talking about is persuasive language. Exactly. And that's not, it, you know, I always say it's not the, it's not the medium, it's the messenger if something goes wrong. Persuasive language is used by every field. It's used by parents to get their kids to go to bed. Right. Um, but how did you even deal with keeping your emotions in check, especially like you said, with the climate of racial prejudice and already just the high stakes circumstances? You know, when you're at that door, it's opening up. You have no idea what to expect. What goes through your mind in a moment like that? Well, I, you know, I don't want to go all religious on you, but Bye, I, I, go ahead. I, you know, I consider myself a, a, a pretty spiritual person. And, you know, one of the big things about me even going into the field uh, that I went into is, uh, you know, I, I just believe that God has a purpose and a direction uh, for all of us. I have a, uh, a special biblical verse uh, that I learned is, is, is Proverbs 16, 9. And it says, the human mind plans the way, but the Lord directs your steps. So I, I really think, you know, that we are put into situations, uh, sometimes not by our own thoughts, uh, uh, but more so sometimes we're directed, you know, by God that, hey, you might think that might be your path. Like maybe I thought my path was to become a doctor, but apparently it was not that I was supposed to go through the things uh, that I went through to subsequently uh, become a law enforcement person uh, to be, become the first African-American chiefs at several places and, and to, to do some of the, the things that I did, but not so much for me. It was for the people that come after me to set an example and show them that this is achievable, uh, whether, whether you think it not uh, achievable for you just because of who you are. But not only is it, is it achievable uh, on the aspect of here's an African-American guy who did this, but it's, a, it's achievable to a Hispanic gentleman or lady, uh, someone of, of, of oriental nature, a Caucasian person to say, hey, you know what? That guy ain't just chief because he's black. That guy is pretty good. You know, that guy is a decent guy and I see why he got to where he is and I'm proud to follow him not because he's some black guy that just happened to be here it's because he's a good person he's got a good direction he makes good choices and he cares about me yeah that that those are the kinds of things that 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 difference makers make I think the other thing to go along with that different difference makers get involved yeah. You know, and reading a little bit and you, you were uh, cheeky with this. You never mentioned this, but I looked you up after our last talk and talk about getting involved aside from just being the first black police chief and everything that you did with the community. You know, you're on the executive board of the Illinois, Illinois Association of Chiefs of Police, past vice president of the South Suburban Association of Chiefs of Police. And I don't know if this is still, uh, if you're retired from this, I know you're retired in general, but you know, at, at one point you were the current chairman of several other committees uh, that had to do with that, you know, and so your ability to get involved, that's what I always say separates critics 
from difference makers. Like there's all these other people that want to squat, piss and moan about a number of things and talk about what they, oh, I could have wrote that book or, oh, I could have, well, then do it, you know, but at the end of the day, you felt convicted enough to get involved. And that stuff all pulls away from your time with family and Laton. Right. And Laton's path wasn't really easy either. You got a survivor for a wife. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, can you talk about the role that played in, in your evolution as a leader and just even as a as a family man, as a husband? Yeah, you know, I, I think uh, sometimes all of us, uh, we don't think about it, people enough uh, to where not so much that we sympathize about people, but we don't empathize enough uh, for people. And um, I mean... Like I said, my wife will be married 42 years uh, this year. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. And, uh, but she's, she's my, I wouldn't be where I am. I couldn't be who I am uh, if it wasn't, uh, you know, for her. She's, she's my rock. Uh, she has weathered uh, all kinds of things. Uh, we were told we couldn't have children uh, at our early age. We have three children now. Uh, I mean, my wife, uh, four years ago, was diagnosed with uh, breast cancer, one of the one of the worst uh, types, which is called triple negative. Uh, to see her go through those things and to uh, see her fight and not give up, uh, you know, most of the time. There were some times when you know when she got uh, ill from the chemo and the radiation. She, she would wonder if this was worth it. But uh, I think, again, through uh, our family, uh, through our belief in God, uh, her, her dedication, but her, her spirit, her character, her, her strength uh, has carried her through this fight. And uh, hopefully uh, we believe she's in remission and we'll know in a couple of more years when they say it's safe to say that. Uh, but, you know, to see her go through the things she went through, I was like, I don't know if I could do that. But uh, she she's a tough, tough person. Great mom, uh, ultimate, ultimate wife and a great friend. A lot of people, I, I don't really know anybody uh, that I've ever heard anybody say anything negative about her. It seems like everybody loves her. So Yeah, I can definitely speak that for my wife as well. I mean, anybody listening to this, it's awesome. So uh, my wife runs a little boot camp, for lack of a better term. Really, it's just a community training session in the garage. But uh, when we first moved out here, my wife Liz was like, you know, I want to do something. I want to get other people in the neighborhood involved. And, and we got a, a full gym in the garage. And Baton was right there, front and center, ready to join. I mean, it's funny. There's so many, there's even strength coaches that when it gets cold out, like they're not going to go into some cold garage and do it. There's some hardcore, but you know, Baton would be here Monday, Wednesday, and now Saturday, and she'd be over there. And no matter the weather, she comes over with her coat or gloves. Liz has her doing squats, clean to press, like full on training. And Baton's always in a good mood. The music's always playing. If it's not playing, Laton makes her own music. And there's something to be said for that in terms of leadership as well. You yeah. know, like the outlook required, the 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 ability to just know that you're going to take some hits on the chin and keep rolling. Right. And both you and her, you know, no matter what bias, you know, no matter what bias, obstacles, prejudice, whatever you're facing, 
if you can just observe instead of attack and you can just, you know, continue to weather that with energy and joy and a dedication to, to, to work with others and try to understand them better, it, it, it matters. It does. I, I, I mean, that's what, to me, that's what life is all about. Not, you know, I don't think uh, your parents or whoever raised you ever told you that life was going to be, you know, a bowl of cherries and flowers and just uh, nothing bad, whatever happened, you know, because obviously that, that's not re- reality. Uh, but you you got to have it in your heart and, you know, the common sense that you use in your brain uh, to not give up on yourself. And of course, if you don't, if you don't care about people, it, it, it's difficult. It's, it's, I, I'm not sure how you live with yourself if you don't care about people. Well, and the last topic I wanted to cover builds off that people and the importance of people. Now, when you talked about your path and the path that you felt like God and, and everybody, you know, has, has put you on, I remember asking you one time, what got you out of the force? And of course, there's always a myriad of factors. You spent a long time in the force. So it's yeah. not like you bailed. Um, but one of those things you mentioned was modernization in terms of, you know, just how they started prioritizing in certain circumstances, technology over human capital. Yeah. You know, could, w- would you mind elaborating on that a little bit for the listeners? Sure. We, you know, uh, we used to always say, uh, as a group of the old time chiefs in our association, uh, you would say, you know, a horse crappy police officer, no matter what you do, you can dress him up with the best computer. You can give him the best walkie talkie. You can have a the, the best aim on his gun, all of these kinds of things, he's still going to be a crappy police officer. I don't care what equipment uh, you give him. On the other hand, if you got a great police officer and, and you know, and, and you give him some extra tools, because that's all we're talking about is, is tool, they're going to use that to enhance their positions. And, uh, but unfortunately, uh, a lot of times we, uh, old timers, we, we talk a lot about, uh, you know, the way it used to be and before, you know, what'd you do I, when I start to give you a perfect example. When I started as a police officer, uh, you didn't have bulletproof vests. If you had a bulletproof vest, I mean, you, you either had a lot of money or, uh, you wanted to make sure, uh, you know, that your, your guarantee with your wife was that, uh, like, okay, I, I'll buy that. And, uh, to make sure, uh, uh, you know, I'm extra safe in your eyesight. But uh, that wasn't something that was provided. And that, that subsequently came along later. But just because back then you didn't have a bulletproof vest, uh, it wasn't that you walked around scared. Uh, because if you if that was the issue, why did you pick this job? You, you know what the job entailed or hopefully... Uh, you knew what the job entailed. You you weren't out here without using your, your brain. But, uh, you know, so to fast forward that, a, a lot of the technology that's out here, uh, in my opinion, we've come so much to depend on technology nowadays. We forget about the human essence of what we need is the real manpower, woman power uh, in this field. You need people on the ground doing the work, not just dependent on surveillance cameras or or somebody 
uh, whose radio, uh, you know, can can get here or there, or or how great my firearm uh, can shoot. You know, they're, they're talking about uh, coming up with guns that can shoot around a corner. You know, uh, almost like a a laser guided GPS kind of. Yeah, they got a movie like that. Yeah. So I mean, uh, but you know, to me, the bottom line is if. if if you're a horseshit person, oh, excuse me. No, you're. This is unedited. You're good. Say say it how you want it. If you're a horseshit person, you 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 know, you, uh, as a cop, you're gonna continue to do horseshit things. And those are the people, you know, that we need to get rid of. Those are the people. I don't care what kind of equipment you give them to make them, as you say, maybe a better cop. If if you aren't worth it, you just aren't worth it. You don't you don't need to be there. I mean, an abundance of technology will never make up for a scarcity of skill. Exactly. And uh, it got even crazier with the body cams, right? Like, I remember yeah. you telling me that, you know, the body cams, you'd have to store so much data. Yeah. And every, didn't everybody have to have their own external hard drive? And then you'd lose yeah. some of that data and then somebody could contest it three months later yeah. and it's get a, off. It's a very difficult uh, situation. You know, you... You, in the Chicago area, a lot of things are predicated in law enforcement on grant money. And uh, one of the things that we were able to do uh, in my last police department uh, was if you had a great connection uh, or you had somebody who could write great grants, you could, you could get those kinds of tools you could get those things that you know would which would enhance great police departments same thing with drug asset forfeiture money one of the great things about uh you know the drug man is that hey we can take his money and his assets if we can find them and when we arrest them and uh so we can take those things and use it for the benefit uh, of people and that kind of money also helps uh, police departments get extra things that are not predicated in your your normal budget. Uh, when body cameras uh, first came out, it's a great it's a great concept, and I and I I believe uh, as time goes on, that's going to be a piece of equipment that you see already that the public demands that police agencies have. Uh, because of of what it can do, what it can capture, uh, but it, but again, it's not the you know it's not the fail safe uh, pieces of equipment. But there's a lot of uh, you know extras and attributes and detractors that come with that. Yeah, it can capture uh, great things depending on the clarity of the video, but you have to have a certain type. Uh, uh, that has that ability to capture the clarity to also coincide with the great sound. Uh, and then you got to think about how can I store this and how long can I store it and how long do I need to keep it? Because, you know, if something bad happens, it usually doesn't take one or two days to figure out something bad happened. It could be six months down the line yeah. or three months or something like that. And if you have a, big department with a lot of cameras that cost a quite a bit of money, uh, you have to have the manpower uh, to be able to utilize and work that equipment properly. And if you don't do something, 
properly, you could be assessed that, oh, well, you know, they erased it. They they got rid of it. They knew oh, this yeah. was going to come and, and things like that. And that, you know, that that's pretty tough. So uh, for just some things like a body camera, you got to do a lot of research, but you better have a lot of money. You better have a lot of assets to be able to, you know, to store the storage of, of video and things like that. And I know the departments I worked at, we were small departments. And if we got grant money to get the cameras, which was great, uh, then you couldn't afford all of the other things. So uh, it'd be different if uh, everything was equitable and, but that's not the reality, you know, of the world, and certainly not the reality in law enforcement. And so, you could have used more cops without money. Definitely, you have more boots on the ground, well, metaphorically, without a doubt. And that was something that, for those of you listening, that Greg <clears throat> and I were talking off off mic a little bit is how much of us, how much, how much we face that in sports performance. I mean, we have organizations that will not pay a coach more than thirty thousand dollars, or not allow for another coach to come on, but they have no trouble paying for some piece of technology that sometimes is twice as expensive. And it's a big reason why I say coaches need to learn marketing and they need to learn some aspects of sales. Cause as you heard Greg talk about, you know, we, we may not write grants, although that obviously happens in the research community. And those of you that are PhDs and in the university setting, but you can write your own metaphorical grant, so to speak, if people just understand your value and the value you provide. And you got to understand that the tech companies the people that create all the technology used in sports performance, they're constantly humming in the ear of all these people with the money, the general managers, the team owners, the physios, whoever else, all the stakeholders, all the power brokers, and they're telling them you need this. And they're preying on the insecurity of why you need this. But nothing beats human capital. Nothing beats a skilled worker with great integrity, values, and clearly designed or defined set of leadership skills. That's a fact. I, I think, uh, you know, unfortunately, the days are coming, and that's the way of, of the future uh, with great with the great technology. But the human aspect of uh, that personal service is in a lot of things in our, you know, in the United States today is is slowly going away. Uh, and I think those are the things that uh, that we miss that really make make a big difference in, in people's lives. So this is what I want to do. Every year, uh, Liz and I, we try to give, I give a portion of proceeds in my book or anything else. Uh, in the past, it's been to the American Cancer Society, the Alzheimer's Association. This year, we want to give to a local police department. Uh, if people listening, people, those of you who are listening to this, if they want to be more involved in supporting local police officers or their their community. What can they do? How can they get involved to help the officers that serve their community? Oh, sure. It's it's like build. It's uh, it's the same thing. It's building a relationship, and you can you can build that relationship by going to your local police departments. Most police agencies nowadays uh, do have a concept where they 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 call it the Citizens Police Academy. Citizen Police Academy gives you, as the average citizen, the ability to learn how your specific police department, police agencies works. It gives you a basic concept of the ins and outs, who's working at the department, what services they provide, uh, how do they investigate a burglary, what would happen if there was a homicide, 
What if someone broke your window? What, what do you do? I mean, all kinds of things. That's a great way for the average person to learn about their department. Then, if you, if you by chance don't have that opportunity, just going up to the police department and contacting one of the supervisors and saying, hey, I want to help out, even if it's with a, a monetary aspect or if it's something that you as a volunteer can do. A lot of police departments appreciate, you know, the people that, that, that really support them and want to make a difference in their community by doing those kinds of things. Yeah, that's good advice. So guys, you know how to get involved. If uh, another way I'll extend this to you, if you want to get more directly involved, but you're a little hesitant or don't know where your local department is, well, one, get off your ass and Google it and go there. But another thing that Liz and I will do is if you just email info at artofcoaching.com, again, I'm going to donate a portion of any proceeds of the book uh, to police departments around the, the greater Atlanta area. So just let me know that that's what you want. We'll shoot you a PayPal link. We'll put your name down the ledger, send you a book, and just know that those funds will go to the police department uh, here in the greater Atlanta area. So there's a lot of ways to get involved. Greg, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your evening away from your wife. I know you just got home from a trip, but thank you for sharing your stories and your lessons in leadership with us. Oh, you know, you're quite welcome. We really appreciate uh, you and Liz as uh, neighbors and friends. So anything I could do uh, to help out, you know, a guy like you, who's a top-notch trainer, uh, <laughs> eventually uh, I will be over here myself. Uh, I don't think I could take your training, Haven't Brett, got you but, I, in but I got to get Liz to, to, we'll hit to the heavy take bag. care of me. All right. Well, thanks again, guys. Make sure uh, if you have a chance to leave a review, it helps information in this podcast and all the others get out to more people. Uh, it's not something where you have to feel compelled to leave a five-star review. It's a simple matter of just algorithms, right? The more people review and interact, the more this information gets out. Otherwise, iTunes and all those other organizations just pile us with dust and, and information like this has never gotten out. So appreciate you all. Greg, thanks again. Listen, one more thing before you go, and I know a lot has been crammed into this episode but I want to make sure I let you know about my YouTube channel. So I didn't do anything on YouTube for the longest time, uh, but per your guys' requests and per some folks that just really wanted some more visual content, whether that be uh, just tips, advice, strategies, or even visuals of the type of coaching that I do, live events and workshops, I have created a YouTube channel that showcases even more in-depth information that complements the podcast, the book, and everything we're doing at Art of Coaching. So if you found value in this resource or you're enjoying the content, please make sure you visit my YouTube channel, subscribe, and we're going to continue to try to put out a wide variety of things that whether you're a coach, whether you're a personal trainer, whether you're a CEO, whether you're a manager, all in some way, shape, or form help you better interact with people and figure out how to work on bridging the gaps in your own development. So again, check out the YouTube channel, check out anything else that we do at artofcoaching.com. And thanks again for tuning into the show. I appreciate each and every one of you.